If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, finally finishing up our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you can find Matthew 7 on page 812 of your Blue Pew Bibles. But before we turn to God's Word, let us ask Him for help for us to understand it and for Him to apply it to our hearts. Oh Lord, we do ask for you to speak. For in your word, there is life and there is truth, and it awakens sleepy hearts, brings to life dead hearts. And so we ask that you would do that work this morning, that you would show us Christ, that we might live for him. Pray all of this in his name. Amen. Matthew chapter 7. Just two verses for us this morning, beginning in verse 28. Because after Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew writes that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. For many throughout the history of the world, when they think about Christianity, think about the Bible, think about Jesus, it's common for them to say something like, you know, I really like a lot of the teachings of Jesus, but the church has really missed the mark. You know, Jesus has a lot of good things to say about love and forgiveness and about humility. But the church is just off base when it talks about sin and judgment and hell and exclusivity. Jesus being one way. That was Gandhi's famous quip that everybody loves to repeat nowadays. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. For your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I have two responses to that critique. First, yeah, that's the whole point of Christianity. We're not like Christ. That's why we need a Savior. That's We can't get our way back to God. We, we need someone to live a perfect life, to rescue us from our sins, and continue the work of sanctifying us. That is the whole point. Of Christianity. The second response is that people tend to only like Christ in so much as the few teachings of his that they've heard sound reasonable to them, right? There's a lot of sayings of Jesus that are really famous that make it out into the public sphere that people think, ah, yes, we, we, we saw in the Golden Rule that there was a Roman emperor who had it emblazoned in gold on his throne room chamber. People think, yeah, I, I love a lot of what Jesus has to say. But they only accept those bits that they find reasonable and acceptable. But because there's things that Jesus said that the world likes, the world loves to make Jesus just one of many of another of their gurus or their innovators or their therapists that inform their 
worldview. He he just on sort of the Mount Rushmore of world thinkers and leaders that people say, yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of Jesus. Think, you know, I'll add him to my collection of things that were said by Steve Jobs and Oprah Winfrey or Joe Rogan, or maybe it's things that Elon Musk or Candace Owens and Tucker Carlson said. We, we all have our, our favorite thinkers, our favorite influencers that inform our worldview, and we tend to just put Jesus on the shelf among the rest of them. This point remains that we just pull a bit from all of these sources we think we'll be able to figure out our lives, our spirituality, and our view of life becomes just one giant cultural and religious buffet. And Jesus is just one helping from that tray. Now, maybe you're here this morning. That actually describes you a lot. Do you like some of the things that you've heard about Jesus, but you wish that these Christians would just maybe chill out a little bit. First, if that's you, let me say, I'm glad you're here. This is a good place to be. We trust that God has brought you here, that he might teach you just a little bit more about himself. So welcome, glad that you're with us, and hope that you're able to hear what Jesus has to say, and it can help shape your understanding of who he is. But also, if you're here this morning and, and you're treating Jesus as one of many other teachers, I want to humbly challenge you by saying that when it comes to Jesus, you cannot accurately describe him as just another good moral teacher. Sure, again, you can pick out the things that he said that you like. But that would be to miss the forest of his authority and of his majesty for a few trees that give you some nice shade. Taken as a whole, all of Jesus' teaching demands that we see him as the sole authority for life and faith. For Jesus is like no other teacher the world has ever seen. That is the main idea this morning. That all of his teachings, we have to take them as a whole, and all of them demand that we see Jesus as the sole authority for life and faith. For he is like no other teacher the world has ever seen. We see this in our passage this morning when the crowds get done hearing this sermon that Jesus preaches. They weren't confused about the exclusivity of his claims. It says that they were astonished. And they recognized that he was teaching as one who had authority and not like their scribes. Now, the scribes in Jesus' day... Think of them more like a profession than a particular sect of Judaism. They were the teachers of the law. They're the ones who went and, and studied and understood the ins and the outs of the law of God. Now, most of them were of the party of the Pharisees, but not all. So 
when you think of the scribes, think of them sort of like the professors of the time. They're, they're the ones whose job it was to study God's law. And so if you wanted a definitive answer on what it meant to, to apply the Old Testament teachings to your life, that's where you would go. You would go to the scribes, and they would teach you what it means to follow God and follow his law. But the way the scribes taught, the way that they exercised their authority was by appealing to other authorities. Think about all of the statements at the end of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. What Jesus was doing there was challenging all of the ways that the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted the law. Just imagine, you're an average Jew in the ancient Near East at this time, and you had a question about the law. You would go to your local synagogue, and you would ask the, the rule of the synagogue and say, you know, my neighbor, he insulted me. What am I supposed to do about this? So then the ruler of that synagogue, he'd, he'd quote a rabbi of the time who, who trained them and say, well, this rabbi says, here's how you apply that law. So uh, here in this case, well, the law says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So here's how you need to repay your neighbor. And then that rabbi, that that scribe was quoting, would just be quoting another rabbi. And that rabbi would have quoted another rabbi. And, and it's just rabbis all the way down forming this authoritative tradition of what it means to follow the law. That that was the system at work in Jesus's time. Now, now let me say, this does not mean that there is an inherent problem with theological traditions. They actually can be very helpful in providing clarity and insight into doctrinal and practical matters. The folks that, that want to say, you know, believe in no creed but the Bible, well, that's problematic. They're mistaken. One, because that in and of itself is a creed, so you, now you have a creed that is not the Bible. But two, when, when you start to press in on this way of thinking and asking theological questions, you find out that, yeah, you have a whole lot of convictions about God and about Jesus, about our salvation, how we come to know that we're saved. There, you have theological convictions. And so if there are theological convictions that you have, there are then theological convictions that you would consider to be out of bounds and unbiblical. And therefore, you have a confessional standard, even if it's a very shallow and basic standard. Third, would point out that nobody exists in a vacuum from other believers and has their theological conviction shaped by just the Bible. Right? We all learn from somebody who learned from somebody who learned from somebody. And, and that's actually okay. That's a good thing. Because along the way, there's actually really smart people who wrote down some very good things that we would do well to learn from. So having 
a theological tradition and, and pointing back to people who were really smart and understood the Bible is okay. We all do that. There's no such thing in practice as no creed but the Bible, only learning from the scriptures. We learn from well-educated people who've given their lives to studying God's word. So in the PCA, for example, we hold to the Westminster Confession and the larger and shorter catechisms, not because we think that they've replaced the scriptures, that they're better than the scriptures, that they have more insight than the scriptures, but we hold to them because we believe they give an accurate summary of the teachings of the scriptures. They're, they're helpful resources in teaching and training God's people to understand and know God better. So appealing to past teachers can actually be very helpful in providing theological frameworks and guide rails so that your current teachers don't go off the road and just invent new theologies all the time. So, so that type of appeal to authority wasn't the problem for the scribes. As we saw in chapter 5, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was that the authorities that they had appealed to had missed the mark. They had the wrong interpretation of God's word. But simply appealing to the authority itself or having a theological tradition wasn't the problem. The problem is when your authority and your tradition gets it wrong. Now there's one more point about this appeal to authority that is important for us to consider as we think about Jesus's teaching here, the end of chapter seven. It's that every preacher, every teacher who stands before God's people and preaches a sermon or tells about God, they are doing that because they have a derived authority. What do I mean by that? I mean that, that there is an authoritative aspect to what is taking place in pulpits on Sunday morning. But the authority that comes on Sunday morning in the preaching of the word doesn't come from me. It comes from somewhere outside of me. So you're not here to listen to me as if I have the final authority. You're here to listen to God's word. And insofar as I preach it and teach it and explain it correctly, that that, that becomes authoritative. Again, not because of me, but because you're, you're sitting under God's word. That's what I mean by preachers and teachers have a derived authority, authority that comes from somewhere else. And so you can sit here and preach the word, you listen to it, and if I'm wrong, you don't listen to it. The authority is not with me. Now, there is a growing trend, a growing movement that says, you know, the, the, the pastors and preachers and teachers, they're not preaching from a derived authority, but they're actually preaching much like the prophets of old would have preached in the Old Testament. Problem, think about the, the prophets of old. Every one of them, Peter says, 
in 1 Peter chapter 1, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the way the prophets spoke, right? Even the prophets of old had a a derived authority. They, they were only speaking what God told them to say. So every time a prophet comes to God's people, they say, thus says the Lord, and they speak to God's people on behalf of God. And the prophets aren't telling you what they think, they're telling you what God thinks. And, and there is now this growing movement in churches here in the U.S., around, around the world, that are saying that God has given this spirit of prophecy to his pastors and preachers today, much like he did in the Old Testament. And more than this just being an issue of doctrinal difference, recognize that this is actually a practice that is dangerous and damaging to God's people. And that is a bold statement. I don't make it lightly, and you know that I don't make them often. But it's a statement that needs to be made. For it is one thing for for me to stand before all of you and and claim authority based on what we can see in God's word together. I I can point you to the word. I can make a case from the word. You can see it. You can reason together with me. That is one thing to claim that that is an authoritative act. It is another thing to claim that you have a private revelation, which is often very specific to your context, and say that that is just as much the very word of God. So now, if a preacher comes to you and says, I have the word, thus says the Lord, and gives you a word, and now you disagree with that creature, you're no longer disagreeing with someone's interpretation of God's word, you're disagreeing with God directly. And you disobey that preacher, you're disobeying God directly. If you take it a step further, if you disagree with these modern prophets, then now we have to call into question, do you even have the Holy Spirit? For the Holy Spirit revealed this to me, and if you haven't been revealed to, then you must not have the Spirit. You must be led astray. See how this quickly becomes very upsetting to the peace of the church, very upsetting and and damaging to God's people who are simply trying to faithfully follow their Lord and what he has said to them. And people, prophets, prophets in quotation marks coming and telling, no, thus says the Lord now, things that you have no basis for reasoning with, no basis for understanding within God's word, just messages given by them from God. See how it quickly hurts God's people, leads them in all sorts of very damaging directions. Now, someone here may ask, well, doesn't God still speak today like he did to the prophets? What, what, what might be wrong with that? Well, remember in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, what the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his 
son. See, throughout the scriptures, we see this pattern of immediate revelation, direct revelation, oftentimes coupled with miraculous signs. This is all taking place during periods when God is doing something new in the history of redemption. So, so you look all throughout the history of the Old Testament. Look at Genesis. There's a number of times when God is speaking directly to human beings, Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But if you think about it, that, that's a handful of people over the course of several hundreds of years. And then there's 400 years of silence until you get to the next stage of redemptive history, and that's Moses and Joshua and the judges. And again, that is a relatively select few given over centuries of time. And this pattern holds all throughout the rest of the Bible, that as God is working redemptively throughout history, he then speaks directly through his prophets to announce something new is happening. But when Christ, right, the Hebrew says, Days of old spoke to you by prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by Christ. So when Christ comes, lives a perfect life, dies, is raised, and is seated at the right hand of God, we recognize that redemption has been fully accomplished. And in the writings of the New Testament, redemption has been fully revealed. There's nothing left for God to say. So there is no longer any need for this type of immediate revelation because there is nothing new that needs to be said for our redemption. God has said all that he needs to say in order for us to be saved. That is the pattern we see throughout Scripture. Direct, immediate revelation is completely tied to redemptive history. And now that redemption has been fully accomplished by Christ and is seated at the right hand, there's nothing left for God to say. But that doesn't mean God doesn't still speak, that the Holy Spirit isn't still active. No, the Spirit still fills us with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. He still softens hearts to receive the gospel. That that type of work, that spiritual work of the Holy Spirit to give wisdom and discernment and insight, that is what is called mediated revelation. It means that it comes through a mediator. Someone else provides it to you. Namely, it's the Spirit working through the scriptures to illumine our eyes to understand what God has said. But that is different than immediate revelation. The Spirit doesn't reveal things directly, immediately, as if God were saying a new word to his people. That is the way he worked prior to Christ, but Christ accomplishing redemption has put an end to the need for God to say anything else. So that, that is why having this movement saying 
Well, the Spirit is still speaking directly to God's people that they might prophesy and have direct words from the Lord is so problematic. It's because Christ is seated and God has spoken. Now, as we think about the Spirit working and speaking in Christ's final work on the cross and Jesus' ministry here on earth and the way in which he taught and spoke, we recognize that this is what sets Jesus apart from every other teacher in the world. Remember, all the scribes, your preachers today, even the prophets of old, all of them were speaking with a derived authority. But as Jesus comes, he doesn't have to point to any teacher that comes before him. In fact, some question him in John chapter 7 because he has no formal education. He didn't sit at the feet of the rabbis and learn from them. So because he didn't sit at their feet and learn from them, he's not quoting the rabbis like all the scribes do. He's not even speaking like the prophets of old did, saying, thus says the Lord. Jesus comes. He's going to teach the people about the kingdom of God. And all he's going to say is, I say to you. The people hear that, and they are astonished. They're, they're dumbfounded. There's another way to translate that word. They can't believe what they're hearing. Nobody talks like this man talks. And it wasn't that he had a new, innovative preaching style. They're not astonished by his technique. It was common at the seminary that I went to for professors to encourage you to you know, maybe change up your preaching style every now and then. Just shake things up and, and grab people's attention. So they'd have you do things like bring in visual aids or, or preach the sermon from the first person point of view, which means maybe for this sermon, I would preach as if I were a member of the crowd, just amazed at this man that I heard. Let me just tell you, that is the closest that you will get to me ever preaching a first person sermon. And here is your visual aid. And, and that is it. That, that My professors would not be happy with me, but that's the way it is. But as Jesus comes and preaches, the crowds aren't astonished at his style or his technique. He's amazing the crowds because he has a new authority. He's not claiming to know about God. He's not claiming to have heard from God. He is claiming to be God and to speak the very things that God speaks. John 14, verse 10 says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. He speaks 
with the authority of God himself. And he does the mighty works that God does, which validate his authority. I actually think that's why here in Matthew's gospel, what Matthew writes after Jesus comes down off the mountain, he recounts all of the miracles that Jesus then begins to do. Because again, the miracles validate the authoritative teaching. We saw last week with the resurrection. That was the ultimate miracle, which finally and fully demonstrated that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And all of these other little miracles that he does along the way work in much the same way to validate, yeah, the things that Jesus is saying, they're true. God is is proving Jesus to be true by the signs and the wonders that he does. And so what to think about the Sermon on the Mount, and we think about all that Jesus taught, all that he did, what do these teach us? about Jesus's authority? What do they demonstrate that Jesus has authority over? We recognize that Jesus has authority over the kingdom of God. He defines what God's kingdom is. He defines how one gets into the kingdom through the Beatitudes. If you, you want the blessings of the kingdom, then there needs to be a recognition of spiritual Poverty, a mourning over sin, a hungering for God. And then he defines all of the characteristics of life in the kingdom. So this is what it means to be citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus is showing you definitively and authoritatively what the kingdom is all about. That you're to love one another as you would love yourself. That that's what kingdom citizens look like. He also has authority over the law and over righteousness. Again, scribes and Pharisees, they were famous for giving their interpretations of obedience to the law. And over and over and over again, Jesus says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. He he is reinterpreting for them what it means to follow Moses and what it means to obey God from the heart and not for man. He he is showing them this is how you truly clean the inside. Not like the Pharisees who have washed the outside. He has authority over the law. He has authority over our sonship. Nowhere else in the Bible is God referred to as our Father until Jesus first teaches us to pray that way. He teaches us that God is near. He knows what we need. He, he cares for us as, as a parent cares for a child. Better than any earthly parents ever could. So we're able to finally know that we are indeed God's children, loved by the Father, secured an eternal, eternal inheritance in his house. Jesus has authority over our sonship. Lastly, Jesus has authority over our salvation. He's not just showing us the way to God. He is the way to God. If you have complete commitment to him, if you obey him, if you listen to his words, 
then you will be saved. And if you reject him or if you pay lip service to him, if you don't follow him with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, then there will be judgment. Your final state is determined by your relationship to Jesus alone. No other scribe, no other Pharisee would dare say such a thing. But Jesus says, if you follow me, if you keep my commandments, if you obey my voice, you will enter into the kingdom. He's rewriting what it means to have salvation. And it is based on him. So Jesus finishes all of these teachings. The crowds are astonished. They can barely believe what they've just heard this man say. Nobody talks with the authority that Jesus talks with. Which is why I said at the beginning that you can't just lump Jesus in with all of the other influential teachers of this age. He stands above all of them. Even the ones that have a lot of insight and a lot of wisdom. Everything true that they say is a truth derived from God that has already been proclaimed in Christ. Even if they don't even know it. They're just simply regurgitating what Christ has already said and taught us about the world. Jesus is the only teacher in the world who is truth, who defines truth, who everything that he says determines reality for his hearers. So that is why you cannot pick and choose the parts of Jesus that you like and think, yeah, I'll just take those bits. Everything that he says is true. Everything that he says is authoritative. If you say, yeah, I really like what Jesus has to say about love and mercy and forgiveness, but I I really don't want what he has to say about hell and and judgment and, and all of these other things. You're no longer letting Jesus sit in authority over you, but you're putting yourself in authority over Jesus. That's what we're doing when we say, I want this thing that he says, but not the other. Which, quite frankly, that we would try and even do that makes me more astonished than the crowds were. That that we would say, yeah, Jesus, you were wrong about this. You can put the best that the world has to offer, and I am still going to take the author of the world every single time. His word is completely, utterly true. Every last dot of it. We can't separate them out, put one in a bucket of acceptable, one in a bucket of unacceptable. Jesus is no longer authoritative when we do that, but we are. So yes, there were people, even then, as they heard Jesus' teachings, that rejected him. Maybe he didn't fit the mold of what they expected for Messiah. Maybe the life of holiness that he was calling them to 
seemed too much. It wasn't worth the cost. Maybe they just love being in authority themselves a little bit too much. They, they didn't want to give up their own authority, their own autonomy, their own power. So many rejected him. Most even rejected him. But others believed. They marveled at his authority and his power. And they said, surely this is the son of God. They saw the love with which he loved them as he gave his final breaths for their sin. And they gave their lives to follow him. And to follow him as we saw last week, not a dead Savior in the grave, but follow him in his resurrected glory. Jesus lived and taught with absolute authority. He still teaches and speaks through his word, by his spirit. And if you want to know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, who this man really is, you have, you have questions, or you're, you're, you're struggling in your faith. You want to know, can I trust him? Can I believe him? Does he have full authority over me and over this world? If you want to know him, take up his word where he has revealed himself. Take it up and read. See what he says. See what he teaches. See what his life looked like. And decide whether you're going to tell the God of the universe to submit to you or whether you're going to submit to him and have everlasting life. Let us pray. Father, it is easy for us to lose sight of the authority with which Christ spoke. These truths can sometimes become commonplace, and we missed exactly what Jesus was saying to his crowds and to us. And it's easy for us and our pride to raise ourselves up and put ourselves on our own throne. And so we pray you would forgive us, pray that you would humble us, Pray you'd help us look to Christ as our sole authority. That we'd cling to his words and not our own. For in his words are truth and life. May we learn to love them and hold fast to them, we pray. Amen.